Well, hello out there. My name is Bradley Klein. I'm with TurfNet Renovation Report. Our sponsors for this show are Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. And our guest is uh, St. Paul, Minnesota-based golf course architect, Kevin Norby. Kevin has been in the business for, what, three decades, I guess. He's done quite a bit of work all through the Midwest and elsewhere. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brad. Um, I have to say that uh, there are some people who think that golf course architects have it easy. They travel all over the world. They're on the Golf Channel. They're waving. You know, they uh, they descend to bless the ground at openings, um, and uh, it looks like an easy job. Everybody wants it. What's it actually like? What do you? How do you actually spend your time as a golf course architect working on new or? Uh, uh, renovation projects well there is there is some truth to the um the perception that we have this great job because it really is a great job it's uh um you know we spend a lot of time outside um get to travel if that's something that makes someone happy i I personally do like to travel it doesn't bother me to get on a plane or get in my car and go someplace I've never been before. So um, it, it's a pretty good job. I mean, I feel pretty fortunate to do what I do. And, you know, I'm getting to an age where people are starting to ask me, you know, when are you going to retire? <laughs> and, and I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, why, why would I retire? I mean, I, I love what I do. I get to travel and I get to write off, you know, my uh, travel expenses and my golf addiction. So, <laughs> so um you know, a lot of our work is renovations, and I think that that has been the case up until maybe just the last year or two. The uh, the economy has been such that, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of golf courses being built. Um, that's changing a little bit because the, I think the golf course industry is going through a little bit of a, um, well, kind of maybe in the middle of a heyday here. Um, so we've actually got some new courses on the boards and we actually did just open a new course this spring, 18 holes up in the oil fields of North Dakota. Um, well, tell us the name, tell us a little bit about it and tell us what your involvement was with the superintendent. Well, interesting. The, um, the course is called Fox Hills and it was formerly known as the Watford city golf course. Um, the superintendent is Mike Moran. We're really fortunate to have Mike. He's a pretty sharp guy. He's been at some other pretty nice clubs. But So this was a, a nine-hole golf course out in the oil fields. And as you can imagine, it's been um, at times just almost chaotic out there with all of the activity going on with the oil boom. Things have slowed down a little bit, but they managed to get this eight and a half million dollar golf course built. Uh, I've actually been working with them since 2008 was the first trip I made out there. And I, I actually told them I didn't think they could justify building another nine holes because they just didn't have the population base to, you know, to um, justify it. 
And they called me a few years later in the middle of the oil boom and said, okay, now we've got the money and we want to do it right. So we want to, we want to blow it up and start over and, and um, make it a destination golf course. So it's kind of right out in that triangle between Minot, Williston, and Dickinson. And it is in the heart of the oil fields. Literally, when you're playing golf, you can see four or five oil rigs, you know, with burning off the methane off of the top of the tanks. Um, but beautiful golf course, beautiful rolling prairie. Uh, Mike's done a great job out there um, and uh, be, uh, be pretty, pretty fun place to, uh, you know, it's out, it's out by Bully Pulpit and Hawk Tree and the links of North Dakota. So there's some good golf in the area. If a guy wanted to make a golf trip out there, that'd be a pretty good one to see. So I've, I've taken groups out there. We rode in a bus for four days and played those other courses. <laughs> so we'll have to come back now. It's, um, what is the land like? How much work did you have to do on it? And uh, I have to say, if it took you 12 years, that's quite a few meetings. So how, yeah. I don't know how much time you spend indoors versus outdoors on a project like that? Well, I would say that one was unusual, taking that many years. Um, again, some of it was just, I told them initially they couldn't justify it and they called me six years later, but then, you know, we got a, a developer involved who gave them some land and another developer wanted to give them some land. And so we designed it and redesigned it. All in all, it was about 800 acres um, of which some portion of it was intended to be housing. That was obviously the developer's, um, you know, uh, motivation. But the golf course probably sits on about 230 acres, so it's pretty spacious. It's, it's pretty spread out. Um, high rolling hills, probably, there was probably 40 trees, mostly cottonwoods, you know, along the, the bottom of the creek. Um, we took most of those out. It's beautiful native prairie. Um, Real interesting, uh, beautiful property. I mean, it's just, it's, it's something different that we don't see in a lot of other parts of the country. Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've played a lot of golf, actually, in North Dakota. One year I played in the North Dakota State Amateur as a guest, and the halfway at the, uh, at the turn, the lunch that they had on offer were Stewart sandwiches and a keg of beer. And uh, <laughs> that was sponsored by the North Dakota Golf Association. So if anyone wants a break, and I guess there's lots of great fishing and hunting out there, it's an amazing area, actually. It's beautiful yeah. terrain that wasn't just that which wasn't destroyed by the oil fields, that is. Yeah. You know, it's not far from Lake Sakakawea, so I'm, I was always surprised at, to see all these boats parked in people's, you know, driveways and yards. And it's, it's maybe less than 30 minutes from a, a huge world-class, you, know, um, you know, walleye lake. So um yeah pretty uh pretty interesting yeah we used to say uh, it was a 30 dollar green fee but a thousand dollars to get there so um yeah <laughs> that's the one limit but it's a beautiful area but you i guess as an architect you work in all sorts of different terrains i, I know you you've been involved in a, in a big renovation at eau claire country club in wisconsin here's a golf course situated right in the middle of town tell us about that project it couldn't be more different than the one out in uh, north dakota yeah, boy, that is true. Um, Eau Claire Golf and Country Club is, uh, well, it was originally developed, I believe, in 1916, um, but they relocated the golf course in 1928 and brought in Tom Varden. So that would be the brother to Harry Varden. And uh, Tom Varden redesigned the course. They 
Um, it, it's got some beautiful remnant greens. Um, the surrounds have never been touched. Bunkers have been touched and, uh, and, and don't really fit the character of the golden age, you know, greens. But so we were brought in to do a master plan and sort of help them understand what needed to be done to, you know, bring the course up to date and minimize some maintenance costs and so forth. Um, the superintendent out there, Nick Painovich, is really good. I mean, he's been just a treat to work with. He's got a lot of energy and he's very knowledgeable. Um, he's in every meeting that we have. Um, so it's been great working with him. But we're going to be um, redoing all of the bunkers and sort of bringing them back to more of a golden age character. Um, also redoing the tees. They've got a um, they've got a couple members there who are involved at the Wisconsin Golf Association um, and on a couple of committees. So they're very in tune to what's going on in the industry as far as growing the game and getting, you know, juniors and women involved. So we'll be building a full set of uh, forward tees and rebuilding most of the tees that are there to level them and get them pointed in the right direction. We're actually going to be building a new seventh green as part of the project, pushing it back a little bit. It's, it's kind of a, it's a hole that's, they've had a couple of other architects look at it over time and never really liked exactly what they came up with. And we had suggested instead of moving the tees back, that we move the green back into a little oxbow that sits right alongside the, the creek there. Um, so we're building a new green and um, and bunkers and tees and uh, it'll be really nice project so should be all complete by by freeze up here this winter so october probably now that's uh it's a modest sized city i don't know what the economy is like but i assume when you're doing a project like that you have to be uh, very mindful of economy you have to think about the business model of the club and uh how much of that enters into your planning or is that is that somebody else's business you know, I I would say it's somebody else's business, except that I have been involved in enough projects um, where we've been working with consultants who talk about the niche in the market, um, branding, uh, marketing, um, and, and so it's it's something that's really resonated with me. Um, I, I try really hard to look at these improvements. And ask myself, where's the return on the investment? Where, you know, why would why would we rebuild that green, um, or why would we redo bunkers? And a lot of times, it has to do with minimizing maintenance costs, or not necessarily reducing maintenance costs, but allowing the superintendent to focus on other things, you know, rather than pulling sand back up on the faces, or, you know. Um, fixing washouts after a, a rainstorm. So, you know, it, it is something that I'm mindful of. And, um, you know, I think that pays dividends in the long run because, you know, it doesn't do me any good as an architect to find out that one of our clubs is struggling financially or doesn't have members or, you know, or, or you know, is going through foreclosure. Um, so to me, it's important that those clubs do well. Um, and the key to that is, you know, looking at what projects we can do that will help make that course more sustainable, more fiscally or financially sustainable. Um, uh, 
on a project like that, how mindful are you or how mindful is the superintendent about labor? Uh, that's a big issue these days. Everywhere I go, it's the number one um, concern on the board. Uh, are you trying to reduce labor, uh, uh, you know, labor hours or? Yeah, well, certainly, certainly at Eau Claire, there was a lot of talk about that. Um, just because, you know, they are finding the same thing everybody else is finding, that it's really hard to find, you know, kids that want to come and work and work a full day and work hard. And um, with some of the H2B, you know, issues out there and not being able to find, you know, seasonal help. Um, you know, Nick, the superintendent, and I have talked quite a bit about, about um, you know, what would, what would the implications be of changing the style of bunker? Um, and what's the implication of hand raking the bunkers instead of putting a sand pro in there? And, you know, the superintendents that have, you know, worked with me know that I, I um, you know, I'm a big fan of hand raking the bunkers, particularly with some of these premium sands, the Ohio best sand. Um, you know, much of the contamination comes from the edges or the perimeter of the bunker, you know, from the sand pro running into it or uh, silt or sediment or debris washing down into the sand. So, you know, the style of the bunker really dictates, you know, the maintenance um, and the amount of maintenance is is really a function of what's their budget. Obviously, a municipal golf course that has a $400,000 budget is we're, we're obviously looking at this completely different than if we're working for a private club who has a 900,000 or a million two maintenance budget. So, um, so at the case of Eau Claire, I mean, they're going to be hand raking their bunkers. Um, they will be relatively flat sand, grass faced, a little bit of flash just here and there. And we are going to be putting in bunker liners um, just, you know, to, to make sure that that, sand stays uncontaminated for as long as possible. Uh, let's take a little bit of break here. Uh, this is Brad Klein with TurfNet Renovation Report. Our sponsors are uh, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Introducing Genesis RX a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com turf. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606 499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project.
The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences, all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. We're now back with Kevin Norby, Midwest-based golf course architect. I shouldn't say, well, you might be Midwest-based, but you're all over the country. I know you're doing a big project in uh, Santa Fe. Uh, no, no, Albuquerque, isn't it? Uh, Papa right. Ridge? Yeah, Yeah, um, just outside of Albuquerque. Um, very nice facility there uh, called Paco Ridge. It was a 2000, it was built in 2000. It was a Ken Dye design. And the club went through uh, an ownership change here a couple of years ago. And we were brought in actually by a, uh, an associate or friend of ours, um, Kelly Gibson, who used to play on the PGA Tour, actually a good friend of John Schmank in my office. Um, so they're looking at doing a pretty major renovation. We're actually in the second phase of that renovation right now, and we're just finishing up plans for the third phase. Um, they, uh, they just spent a, um, a little money, quite a bit of money actually, uh, renovating the clubhouse and they brought in a new superintendent named Chad Twaddle, who, uh, used to be at Mauna Kea in Hawaii and they, they hired him away from Mauna Kea and they have big plans to do some pretty nice stuff with this facility. It's a 27 hole facility. Uh, we're working on plans for uh, adding another nine and uh, regrassing, redoing the greens, redoing the bunkers, new irrigation. Um, be be a real nice. Uh, well, it's already the number one facility in uh, New Mexico, but uh, their goal is to make it, you know, one of the best golf destinations in the country. So um, they've done a really nice job. The new ownership, uh, uh, hiring all the right people, and and um, the money where it uh, it'll do the most good. So. You're also involved in a very interesting. I guess it's more engineering than golf. Uh, the hydrological uh, program for St. Paul Public Golf. Tell us about that because that's uh, that's kind of old public works. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, that would be um, that would be Como Golf Course, and Como Golf Course was. Um, the history is not completely clear on exactly when that was built, but it was renovated by my mentor, Don Herford, um, back in, uh, I guess it was 1990, I believe. Um, he actually redid the entire golf course. Um, and um, the superintendent there is Jeremiah Ergen, and he works for Foursome Golf Management. So, Foursome Golf Management manages two golf courses for the city of St. Paul and the city of St. Paul um, was working with the capital region watershed district to do this big stormwater project. And essentially what they did was they, um, they found an area on the golf course that had sandy or gravelly soils 
and they approached the city and said, we'd like to put in a stormwater detention basin and we'd like to put it underneath your seventh fairway. <laughs> oh, sure. So, Why not? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So they were trying to find a way to treat, um, you know, runoff from the surrounding community and actually the, uh, the zoo. And so what they ended up with doing is they ended up actually excavating the seventh fairway and putting in, I believe it was like 1,600 lineal feet of six-foot diameter pipe. And so all of this runoff comes off of the surrounding community, runs into this stormwater detention basin, which then overflows into these big pipes, which then percolates into the groundwater. And it was a real win-win, I think, for the city because in doing that, they took what was arguably one of the most poorly drained fairways on the golf course, and we were able to obviously elevate the fairway. We were able to add some surface drainage so we could move water off of the fairway more quickly, and then we, um, we regrassed it, and um, it, it's actually turned out really quite good. I, I assume it's functioning well from a stormwater standpoint, but we're not getting much in the way of rain these days. So, um, but it, it's been a real win and we're doing another similar project actually for the, um, uh, city of Minneapolis, um, where they're putting in some stormwaters and we're reconfiguring the, the, the golf course. And that would be Columbia golf course with superintendent Isaac, uh, so we've got a couple of those. I think we're, we're seeing that this is happening more and more often where, you know, municipalities are trying to find a way to deal with stormwater management in the urban core. And, uh, and they're looking to golf courses as big green spaces that they can either dig ponds or they can do subsurface drainage storage systems. So it's, um, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Most of the golf courses in Chicago are basically cited in the, in the uh, overflow basins and stormwater management areas. Um, remember they had a PGA tournament a few years, uh, what, in the late eighties, I guess with, uh, Butler national was flooded out completely. So they, they just right. moved it next door. The, yeah. um, uh, what the engineering must be fascinating because you have to, I mean, basically you're slicing open a golf hole, putting massive pipe in and then closing up the suture again. Right, right. Uh, but along the way, you've got to do quite a bit of engineering on 100-year storm levels, uh, volume analysis, uh, flow and density and release. Uh, do you do that or does a, does a civil engineer do that? Well, usually on, actually almost always on these big stormwater management projects where the watershed's involved, um, they have a project engineer um, because it's oftentimes much bigger than just one or two golf holes. Um, so they do all of that work when we're doing, when we're working directly with a, a golf course and trying to help them solve some flooding issues or some drainage issues. Um, some of that we can do in house. Uh, some of that we need to bring in our own project engineer to run some stormwater calculations or do pipe sizing. Um, but you know, I have a background as a registered landscape architect, so we do have some experience and expertise. Um, and we do all of our own grading plans and, and those type of things, balance, cut and fill. And, uh, but any detailed stormwater calculations or pipe sizing, we would bring in an engineer for that. 
Now, I would assume some of this is a function of uh, the filling in of urban and suburban spaces. A lot of these golf courses, uh, maybe not Como Park, but a lot of them, when they were built, like Eau Claire Country Club or Minot Country Club. And by the way, both were done by Tom Varden. Interesting connection there. Right. Uh, the, uh, nobody minded. Uh, there was lots of open space. There were farmlands. Uh, now, many, many golf courses uh, are closed in around them because of the building and the, uh, the, the paving over blacktopping of the, of the surround. So the golf course becomes the only available drainage basin for stormwater management. I guess my question is how much of what you're seeing now and the work that's developed in that is a function of that urban fill-in and how much of it is a function of climate change and increasing intensity of, of you know, monster five-inch rainstorms? Yeah. Well, m- many of those, you know, many of those golf courses that are seeing those stormwater projects, that's a reaction to you know, urban development and, and just looking for some place to put that water. They're getting streets that are flooding or basements that are flooding that never used to flood before um, because our storms have longer duration and they seem to be more intense. Um, I, I think one thing that is sort of interesting to me is that we're still seeing some golf courses go away, um, that is be redeveloped into something else. And I think largely that's not necessarily because they're struggling financially, but the developers have figured out that if they want to sell homes, um, you know, they could just as well go build a, um, you know, a new residential development on on an existing golf course in the urban core where, you know, where they can sell homes in the right school district and the streets are there. And so, you know, I always say that, golf course development is largely driven by the housing market. And so if the housing market's strong, some golf courses are going away because the developers want to build a golf course or want to build houses there. But on the same note, out on the urban fringe, um, they're building new golf courses um, and mostly golf course communities. So we're starting to see some of those again in um, Arizona and Colorado and Florida and uh, even in Minnesota. um, There's been talk about some, uh, new golf courses. And certainly the one that we just finished up in North Dakota, that was driven by the housing market. They've got plans there to do, I think it's 1400 homes um, have been platted or planned. So, But the golf course gives them a little bit of breathing room in terms of density allocations and uh, green space and sometimes can help uh, the, the, the uh, proposed development fit in with the existing land plan, can, uh, right. town plan, I should say. Right. Well, it allows them to meet the the um, required open space requirement that the county or the township or the city has. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, as you point out uh, or suggest, uh, a golf course is really, it's just a piece of land and it's going to be used for something. And at a certain price point, it's probably a lot more profitable as a, uh, 500 home units than uh, than it is at 18 holes. So um, you sort of have to, I know whenever I fly over a city like Los Angeles, for example, I just wish they had built more golf courses and held on to them because the green space, the openness, the habitat, the, uh, the uh, temperature variation that it provides, ambient cooling, all of that oxygen fixation, uh, carbon 
offsets. Uh, golf course is a great environmental asset, but they also are a business. So it's interesting. Uh, and uh, I guess your job as an architect is to make sure that they stay viable. Right, right. Um, yeah, they, they also serve, and maybe you mentioned that and I missed it, but um, they're great wildlife corridors, you know. Um, so, you know, it's not uncommon even in the urban core to see, you know, fox and mink and, um, you know, some of the smaller animals that might frequent, a, um, you know, an open park somewhere. I guess that could get really interesting when you're neighboring a, a zoo like you are at Como Park. I'm looking yeah, at the... Right. Is that the zoo just to the south of the seventh hole that you rebuilt? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah so that, that hole can actually provide, that's almost like a moat, isn't it? Keeping the camels and the hippopotami out. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? If you've ever heard a lion roar, um, it's amazing how loud and how deafening that is. But yeah, you can be on the seventh hole and hear the lions roar out there. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's why I missed my four foot putt there. Yeah. Right in the middle of it. <laughs> An unruly anyway. photographer, I thought it was, yeah. Uh, you're a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and I gather you've been a member for, what, 15, 20 years now? Yeah, I think, I'm, I think it's probably 12 years now. I was, a, was, kind, of a, I was kind of a latecomer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I started, actually, I kind of got introduced to the golf business back in 1990 when I met Don Herford. He was a member, he was a fellow with the American Society of Golf Course Architects. But it wasn't really until, well, let's see, 2003, Don retired. And at that point, I started to pursue membership in the society. So um, I'm a little bit of a latecomer to the game. Um, I, didn't, I didn't grow up with golf. We didn't have the money to be a member at a club or own clubs. So. Uh, that's the uh, professional association where they walk around with those uh, weird-looking Ross red <laughs> tartan uh, jackets, right? That, that is correct, yes. The red plaid jackets, yeah. Well, other than look uh, foolish as uh, mobile billboards at the PGA show, tell us what the ASGCA, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, actually does to advance the game and your trade and, and the profession. You, you know, um, I enjoy being a member because I get to talk to other people who do what I do. And there's only, I think, 177 of us uh, in the world. So it's a pretty small fraternity. Um, what, I, what I love about the society is how proactive we are as an organization in promoting uh, sustainability, water management, um, just you know, initiatives to grow the game. Um, you know, it's, um, we're really fortunate that, that we have some really good people um, running that organization and we have, you know, members who um, have the energy to, to help again, promote the game and do the right thing. So, you know, if you've never been to their website, it's, um, it's worth taking a look. There's a lot of, um, free information there, brochures, pamphlets, um, how to select an architect, um, how to make your golf course sustainable, um, how to improve pace of play, um, all of those kinds of um, things that maybe a superintendent um, would find some benefit um, in, in reading and, and passing on to your greens committee or your board 
um, to educate them on, you know, the benefits of uh, maybe rebuilding your bunkers or um, pace of play or trees or whatever the issue might be. And just so our listeners know, that's uh, www.asgca.org. So it's a great resource. I use it. um, And um, in terms of environmental, um, not just uh, profiles of architects, but um, the resource management skills and the interaction uh, with everybody from the USGA to the uh, Golf Course Builders Association and the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. Kevin Norby, I want to thank you. And on behalf of TurfNet uh, Renovation Report, uh, really appreciate the work you do and uh, taking uh, the time here to explain it to our audience. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it.